Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. But in case you haven't noticed it yet, I am not Jenna. (laughs) My name is Abraham Hamilton III. I am the host of the Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio, which airs daily Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Central Time to 6 p.m. Central Time, your evening drive time show. Uh, But I have the honor this morning of filling in for Jenna. Um, she has filled in for me numerous times. And so now I have the opportunity uh, to return that favor because as many of you know, uh, at this juncture, uh, and I, I'm still mystified to a degree that this is actually happening, uh, but Jenna had to go to Fulton County, Georgia yesterday. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> uh, having to um, surrender herself for these ridiculous charges. I mean, ridiculous charges from the Fannie Willis, Fulton County's district attorney in the Atlanta area. Uh, For those of you who may not know who I am, I'll just do a very, very brief introduction. I am also an attorney. Uh, In addition to my role on the radio, I serve as American Family Associations and American Family Radio's general counsel. Um, I have a background as a former criminal prosecutor for over a decade where I handled major felonies uh, at the trial level. And so what Jenna is experiencing is something I'm very, very familiar with, which is why among among the, the things that are just absurd, uh, one of the things that may not be as obvious that is also absurd is the bonding process. You know, she has, uh, what, I think a $100,000 bond. Uh, Several others have $200,000 bonds, which which may not be obvious to some who are not familiar with the criminal justice process. These are numbers that are usually attributable to people with pretty extensive criminal histories. This is not something where you have someone who who is appearing at a minimum for what's called a a non-arrest indictment, which means that the case was presented to a grand jury without anybody being put in custody. Uh, It's a case that does not have any what's called kinetic victims. There's no ones who, who no one was stabbed, shot, killed, maimed, et cetera, uh, because the bond's purposes are twofold. The bond's purposes are, uh, one, to ensure that the charge party uh, attends court for all of the necessary hearings, but also to protect the community from a potential subsequent instance of violence or injurious conduct. <laughs> uh so it is, it is, it is, it is, it is absurd. It is absurd. It is absurd. Uh, in addition to those things I mentioned before, I, I, I do, uh, I am a Bible teacher as well. I'm a husband and a father. Uh, my wonderful wife, Maria and I have been married 15 years. That's amazing, man. 15 years. It feel like it's flown by. And, uh, we, uh, homeschool our children. We have six children. Yes, you heard me right. That's six with an S and an X. <laughs> Uh, and man, most importantly, above everything, man, I love the Lord with all that I am. Uh, and so I am grateful to be able to, 
spend this time with you this morning. Many of you are on your way to what I describe in my show as your part-time jobs because when you get off of work is when you start your full-time jobs. That's what I say all the time on my program. Um, I usually begin, which I'm going to do now in this segment, with the Word of God. I think it's vitally important uh, for myself personally as well as all who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, before we endeavor to navigate the issues of the day, that we are steeped, we are grounded, and that we are saturated in the word of God. The Lord said we are to abide in him. John 15, 5, he is divine. We are his branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so I find that to be absolutely necessary. The way that I that I hope to navigate the show this morning is that we'll do this first segment with this introduction and a bit of a Bible devotional to get you on your way to, to work. Then in the second segment, we'll begin with a bit of recap uh, because I don't know if you know, last night there was a little something, something that went down. Was, you know, the presidential primary debate in the GOP side um, to where eight Republican candidates uh, appeared on the debate stage. I find it interesting that you had people like Doug Burgum who made it to the debate stage. But for some reason, uh, Larry Elder and AFR's own formerly Bishop E.W. Jackson weren't invited to the debate, to the debate stage. Now, I know some people might say something about popularity, but you cannot tell me that people knew that Doug Burgum had the type of popularity that would allow him to make the debate stage. Um, I do think while I'm saying that one of the major things that, that transpired that uh, was just palpable in my, my view uh, was I think eight people were too many. Uh, I, I am eager. I'm sure many Americans share my view here. I am eager to get to more substantive exchanges between people who are viable candidates. So, uh, my my statement concerning Larry Elder and Bishop E.W. Jackson is primarily based on the fact that I know that they would have introduced subject matter that went unaddressed largely on the stage last night. Uh, however, I do think it's important to get get to brass taxes, you know, Let, let's let's get to it. But before we get into all of those things, let's turn to the word of God. We're going to go. We're going to go to the book of Proverbs this morning, the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is important to note uh, that we refer to the Bible often as a book, but the reality is the Bible is a book that consists of 66 books written by more than 40 authors across a 1,500-year time period on three different continents, written the Old Testament nearly exclusively in Hebrew, exclusively in Hebrew, the the, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in most, the majority of these Koine Greek, Koine Greek, which is conversational Greek uh, of the era, as well as some Aramaic. Um, included within all of that, there are multiple genres of literature within the Word of God. Similar to, you know, you have genres of music. You know, you would not evaluate, uh, for example, country music the same way you'd evaluate jazz. You wouldn't evaluate, you know, hip-hop the same way you'd evaluate rock and roll, even though you may have some bleed over in different genres. Uh, but there are distinct genres. The same is true in literature. You know, you would not evaluate a poem the same way you would you would navigate narrative or history and things of that nature. The book of Proverbs consists of wisdom literature and is one of the few places where you can uh, evaluate individual verses and plumb their depth. So we're going to go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, the book of Proverbs, chapter 18. And we are going to begin right at verse 13. Here we go. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. And this is what the word of God says. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly 
and shame. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Verse 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Verse 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Now, what you see from this section in the book of Proverbs, what the scripture is encouraging, is something that must be, it should be, and it must be foundational to functioning as a believer. All right? It is intrinsic, I should I say not intrinsic, it is incumbent upon the believer that we develop the character habit, the character habit that before we endeavor to weigh in on any matter, that we endeavor to hear it fully. What do I mean by that? In our culture, and, and, and Thomas Sowell has a quote to where he says, it's not that Johnny can't think. It's that Johnny confuses thinking with feeling. We live in a, live in a time period where people are all too eager to jump into the fray of discourse, even debate, no pun intended, <laughs> before they actually have any substantive, cogent knowledge about the subject area. There's another portion of Scripture that says, the fool is thought wise as long as his mouth is shut. <laughs> In other words, you can be a know-nothing, but as long as you are silent, you won't reveal that to the masses. We should endeavor as believers to not merely opine, but to make sure that what we opine and where we opine, that it is anchored in truth. It is anchored substantively because this is, again, not merely one man's opinion. The scripture is encouraging us. The man who speaks, he who speaks, who gives an answer before he hears. It is to his folly and his shame. We also, I also see, and I'm sure you do as well, that there are some people who you converse with and the conversation is not really a dialogue. It's really, you know, a double Dutch game of a person who speaks and they're just looking for the next opportunity to start talking again. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and if you're actually interested in, interested in the dialogue, if you are the initial speaker, I'm sorry, if you are the subsequent speaker and you offer some contribution to the conversation, but the initial speaker just rolls on as if you have said nothing. It causes you to say, wait a minute, did you hear anything that I said? Were you listening? Well, no, actually, I just talked and took a break. I'm looking for my next opportunity to speak. The proverb goes on to say that an intelligent man seeks knowledge. And I would, I would add that knowledge is articulated as, as knowledge biblically. Because there's a difference between an acquisition of information and knowledge. How can I say that? Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There is a distinction between an acquisition of information and knowledge biblically. And I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Proverbs 28.5 says, The wicked cannot understand justice, but the righteous comprehended fully. Yet, we have scores of people that want to have conversations about justice in our day and age. 
But the Bible tells us the wicked cannot comprehend justice. So what are we really having a conversation about? At best, if the wicked are driving the dialogue, the conversation will be skewed in its context. This is why I tell people all the time, as a Christ follower, we don't need the world's help to tell us how to obey what the Lord has commanded us. You know, if the issue in society that's percolating is, is what the Bible calls partiality, which I, I, I really bristle at the usage of the terminology racism, because if you understand the history of that term, you're affirming a wicked idea um, <laughs> in an effort to try to rebut that wicked idea, not even knowing it. We may not have time to get into that today. But the Bible calls it partiality. All right. Well, if we're having an instance where the sinfulness of partiality is on display, it is my prerogative and my privilege not to, let me see, how many worldly ideologies can I adopt and embrace in order to address this issue? No. What I need to do is to reacquaint myself, refresh my understanding again with what the word of God commands of me, and submit myself afresh to it. It is the, it is the Lord himself who says, I am to love my neighbor as myself. And this is not merely a New Testament phenomenon. This goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. That is my foundation for how am I, I am to engage my neighbor, not some Marxist, you know, critical theory, subset, critical race theory, communication, who the progenitors of these ideologies said their goal was never any type of racial comedy or, 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 or harmony. The goal always was to subvert and overthrow. Here's the terminology, the established hegemony. People ignore the fact that critical theory is an ideology fomented in an exclusive European context for the sole purpose of accommodating the uprising of the proletariat to cast off the restraints of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> that same ideology filtered into the American context based on our history is what, be, what is being utilized. And then the world is standing in shock when they see, oh, this is not making it better. I'm like, duh, that was the, the goal was never to make anything better. The goal was destruction from the onset. And then lastly, this is the direct examination versus cross-examination scripture. The one who states this case first seems right. Seems right. Until another comes to examine him. This is why we must be, the people of God must be a people who seek to hear before answering. Because if we answer first without having a thorough comprehension is to our folly and shame you are listening to jenna ellis in the morning but nah jenna didn't stay up too late and sounding all froggy and craggy in the morning i am filling in for her abraham hamilton the third in for jenna ellis she'll be back lord willing tomorrow morning i'll be with you for the remainder of the program and i encourage you to stay with me because when we get to the next segment to the next segment we'll talk debate recap Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. Abraham Hamilton III here in for Jenna Ellis. I usually host well, the Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio Monday through Friday evenings from 5 to 6 p.m. Central Time or 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. I want to let you know about something. Many of you may remember the case of Coach Joe Kennedy. Do you remember him? Uh, this is the brother in the faith who was also a football coach in Bremerton, Washington, who had the audacity. I mean, God, can you imagine that? He had the audacity to do this radical thing. You know, you might have heard about it before. He wanted to pray 30 seconds after the game was over. This led to him being fired. 
you know, nearly a decade of litigation. Isn't that amazing? And finally, thanks be to God, the U.S. Supreme Court announced that there was this thing. You might have heard of this, too. It's called the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And it, it, it exists to put restraints not on the citizenry, but on the governments. All right, on the government. And said, government, you cannot <laughs> prohibit this brother from praying. All right. This Friday, no, next Friday, because this Friday is the 25th. Next Friday, September 1st, will be September 1st, not 1st. September 1st. It's like Mike Tyson started hosting the show for a moment. September 1st. <laughs> September 1st <laughs> will be Coach Kennedy's first game back on the sidelines as a football coach. He, along with our friends at First Liberty Institute, which is the law firm that represented Coach Kennedy, uh, are inviting you to join Coach Kennedy in prayer on Friday, September 1st. Uh, you can join a coalition of ministries and organizations and commit to praying with Coach Kennedy by going to RFIA.org. That is Restoring Faith in America.org. RFIA.org. You're being asked to share a video message or a photo encouraging friends and followers to take on the First Freedom Challenge. And starting on September 1st, pray after football games. This is a challenge that will go throughout the entirety of the month of September. The purpose here is simply twofold. One, to utilize this opportunity as a time to turn our nation back to prayer. All right. Two, to have a cacophony of Americans who will stand and say, you know, our first freedoms are first for a reason. And we embrace the freedoms that we have to pray and we want to utilize them. You can also post messages on your own social media accounts, encouraging friends and followers to take the first freedom challenge as well. But you can go to RFIA.org for more information. All right. As I mentioned in the first segment, I'm here this morning with you. Uh, because Jenna had to appear in court in Georgia to be processed. I don't know if you saw her mugshot yet, uh, where she's smiling a lot like this, if you're watching the show. And, um, I mean, it, 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 is, it is laughable. I mean, I, I sincerely believe that you may see some malicious prosecution charges coming up, potentially, um, I do know there's some actions taking place in the, in the, at, in the Georgia legislature uh, concerning this because this is rogue. You cannot criminalize the practice of law. I mean, bottom line. And what happened with the, the, the Trump campaign is not something that's novel in American history. You know, it happened in the Rutherford B. Hayes versus Samuel Tilden election in 1876 where you literally had separate slates of electors from certain states that appeared in Washington, D.C. on electoral vote. Certification count day. You know, you, you had things like this happen in the 60s when uh, Hawaii offered a separate slate of electors uh, in the JFK election. And, and you had, you know, I don't know if you heard about this yet either, but you had people like, you know, this name is for verboten on the Hamilton corner. She or shall never be president. You know what that is, Devin? Bingo. She or shall never be president. Literally toured the country saying Donald Trump is illegitimate. He's an illegitimate president. He's an illegitimate president. You had Congress members who, who literally objected to the certification 
of Mr. Trump's election in 2016. You have Stacey Abrams. Now, that was intentional. Stacey Abrams, most of us know her for one reason and one reason alone. She went around for four years saying she was a real governor of Georgia. You know, it's like, this is just absurd. And I, and I truly believe that the ultimate objective here, really similar to the, to the January 6th persecutions, is to intimidate the American people away from the constitutional right to petition our government for redress of grievances. Even if you think former President Trump and his campaign were wrong in what they thought might have been the constitutionally appropriate measures to pursue. Being wrong is not criminal. Now, I do not believe that they are wrong. There are some who would say, oh, and this was said on the debate stage last night, couldn't have been me. That Mike Pence did his constitutional duty. I disagree. Now, if he was fully persuaded that everything was on up and up, then that's one thing. But I believe the Constitution does provide for the vice president in his role as the certifier of the Electoral College votes. Or at least before now, because I'm going to say something else after this. Um, not to, to reverse the outcome of the, of the election. But if there's any evidence of election irregularity or unimpermissibly counted voting, and there were several states to where the time, manner, and place provision was adjusted not by the state legislatures. The U.S. Constitution says the state legislatures alone have the exclusive authority to determine time, manner, and place of the federal elections. So when you have places like North Carolina, for example, who had the time, manner, and place adjusted by its court, was that constitutionally passable? When you have, you know, in the state of Michigan, where you had people who received absentee ballots unsolicited, the law in Michigan, which Devin would know very well, maybe, <laughs> but it requires, in order for you to receive an absentee ballot, you have to ask for one. <laughs> Things like that are bases if you, if you have questions. For which you can say, states, are you sure that these electoral votes were cast in a manner that is constitutionally possible? He had that authority. And you want to know one of the re reasons why I know he had that authority? Because no one would tell you this. But with the Democratic-controlled Congress, soon after January 6th, you want to know what they did? They passed legislation to truncate the vice president's power concerning the certification of electoral votes. Isn't that interesting? So you literally had Congress act to say the very thing that some were arguing that the vice president could have done concerning the votes, the electoral, the electoral college votes. They passed legislation after the fact to say, no, we don't want you to be able to do that. Isn't that interesting? Is that not a tacit admission that, mm, yeah, he probably could have done this before? Anyway, I didn't want to get off on that, but that's why it, it shocked me. So now, to get to the debate from last night, eight people. <clears throat> I think that's too many. Uh, but it was interesting um, in terms of overall assessment, and I have some clips here. I want to give you a, a bit of the flavor from the debate as much as possible because I don't know if you all saw the, the draconian rules that Fox News put out saying that we don't want to allow people to air anything from the debate. That's interesting. Um, 
I think there were some people who helped themselves more than others. Um, I think Vivek Ramaswamy is one of those. Although I, I thought what he said, he has some good things to say. But I do have questions about his motivations. You know, it was exposed last night that he's running for president. He's 38 years old. I don't think the age is as much of a problem, at least for me, as the fact that he admitted that he just started voting. <laughs> like he just voted 2016 and 2020 were the first times he's ever voted in the presidential elections. Although, you know, his parents were migrants to this country. He was born in Ohio. Uh, he's benefited from our freedoms to allow him to become a, a super successful, you know, biotech entrepreneur. <clears throat> but you just started voting, which raises the question, how interested are you truly, genuinely, in protecting the greatest constitutional republic in the history of the world if you just started participating in presidential politics. And, and at, I mean, disinterested people participate in the presidential elections, but you just started presidential elections. I thought um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, I think many people longed for more from him, but I do think he showed some passion that others have said maybe that had been lacking in some degree. I think he, he served himself well. But I really, beyond those two, everything else was kind of to me, you know, because you had opportunities there. I think this was some of the best opportunities that any of these other candidates will get having former President Trump not on the stage. This is your time to shine, man. Like, go for it. But, and having watched, and I told Devin this, I watched the debate last night. And then I got up early this morning to watch the interview. It was 46 minutes with Tucker Carlson on X. I'm sorry. I, I'm just calling the artist formerly known as Twitter because X, it just, it just sounds silly to me. Why not Tesla X? <laughs> anyway, it seems that former President Trump made the best decision by not participating in the debate. Because as he said, and, and we'll get to that in a, in a moment, why give people an opportunity, he didn't say it this way, but to take shots at me if I'm the king, I'm up by a bunch of points. That's what he's he's basically saying. But I want to give you a couple highlights just to give you a taste in, in the event that you weren't able to watch the entire debate. One of the areas where I believe uh, Vivek Ramaswamy shined last night and uh, Ron DeSantis as well is when they discussed education. I feel like Vivek Ramaswamy in the beginning of the, ele- of the debate, this dude literally started out by... Uh, what do you call it? Plagiarizing Barack Obama. And the first thing out of his mouth was, well, I'm, I'm in the, I don't know how I made it on this stage with this weird sounding name. I'm like, dude, I don't think that's the way you want to go in the first debate in the Republican primary. The way you're going to go full Barack, you know, BHO out of the gate. I thought that was whack. I thought that was lame. Like, what are you doing? But I felt like Vivek got stronger as he went on in, in the debate. But the education conversation were two high points, in my view, from both Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. Listen to Vivek Ramaswamy discussing education and fatherlessness. It's clip number two. So look, we have a crisis of achievement. Let's shut down the head of the snake, the Department of Education. 
Take that $80 billion, put it in the hands of parents across this country. This is the civil rights issue of our time. Allow any parent to choose where they send their kids to school. End the teachers' unions at the local level to allow public schools to compete. And then revive our national identity where every high school senior should have to pass the same civics test that frankly every immigrant, including my mother, had to pass in order to become a citizen of this country. And the fact of the matter is, look, there's part of education policy that also rests with the family. I didn't grow up in money, but you know the word privilege gets used a lot? Well, you know what, I did have the ultimate privilege of two parents in the house with a focus on educational achievement. And I want every kid to enjoy that. So part of the problem is we also have a federal government that pays single women more not to have a man in the house than to have a man in the house, contributing to an epidemic of fatherlessness. And I think that goes hand in glove with the education crisis as well, because we have to remember education starts with the family and the nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. The nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. He was strong there. Now, I'll, I'll give a bit of warning. I know some of you might have heard me talk about this before. I think uh, Christians need to be careful. And I've said before, I'm a homeschool father on the school choice argument. All right. I don't think it's wise for school choice funds to be allocated in a, in a um, voucher type program. And this is why. The government is Leviathan State. The moment you involve the state in the direct conferring of funds for education is the moment that you give them another point of access and entry to governing the content of that education. I believe the most prudent route to go is for there to be a tax credit afforded at both the state level and the federal level where there. Where there's an income tax in, in the states, and there are a few states that don't have state income taxes, there should be a credit that normally would have gone towards public education. Same thing at the federal level, because I don't want the, gr the government's grubby hands in my business. Now, I agree that if I am not sending my children, let me say it better, the dollars should follow where the parents decide to educate their children. All right? That is the principle that should be employed. But the way that it's done is important. Because what you'll find over time, I don't know if you, have you noticed this trend, the government may start off at this one point, but it always grows. But anyway, I thought that was a strong point for Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, generally speaking. Generally speaking. I also was a bit disgusted frankly after Christians and pro-life people have fought for nearly 50 years to see Roe overturned it's kind of jolting to see so many Republican presidential candidates become kind of squishy on the issue why is it so hard to come right out and say hey in the United States of America we don't think killing babies is right what's the problem with saying that you got all of this hemming and hawing all of these political consultants and all of these things what about the babies? What about the babies? It, 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 it's unnerving to me to hear this from Republican presidential candidates. So I was greatly disappointed and at how squishy they become in a post-row America. Say it with your chest. We don't think killing babies is right. Period. Period. 
the things we'll do to help crisis pregnancies for the mothers and the families, but baby killing is not an American value. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. Wow, already. Last segment of Jenna Ellis in the Morning. I am filling in for her, Abraham Hamilton III, um, host of the Hamilton Corner Monday through Fridays, 5 to 6 p.m. Central or 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We will open the phone lines this segment. So if you'd like to join the program to discuss your your take on the debate last night, uh, I'd love to hear your opinions. The number to call is 888-589-8840. That number again is 888-589-8840. I want to just give now an overview of the conversations that were had last night on the debate stage concerning the economy. We have a brief montage of those things for you. And it's clip number four. Go. Our country is in decline. This decline is not inevitable. It's a choice. And it starts with understanding we must reverse Bidenomics. We need to lower your gas prices. We're going to open up all energy production. We will be energy dominant again in this country. What we also need to understand is that Joe Biden's Bidenomics has led to the loss of $10,000 of spending power for the average family. When you see 16% inflation, your gas is up 40%. Your food is up 20%. Your electricity is up 20%. It's going to take an outsider. Because for a long time, we have professional politicians in the Republican Party who have been running from something. Now is our moment to start running to something. To our vision of what it means to be an American today. So that gave you an overview of some of the commentary concerning the economy. Um, It's always interesting to me to see who who is placed in their placement center stage and center right, center left, things of that nature. That always happens based on who is perceived as being the front runners in the debates. And it's always interesting to see how those who kind of are on the flank, they attempt to lob <laughs> bombs toward those who are at the center. And, and it what it's kind of astounding that you have, you know, like Vivek Ramaswamy, this uh, political neophyte, who is polling in his center stage, though you have former governors, a former vice president, U.S. senators, and they're all, you know, following him. And so he was a subject of a lot of attention. I thought Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis, did a good job because of his position of not kind of punching down, so to speak. Uh, he, he, in my view, needed to present a forward-facing vision uh, to not to, to spar horizontally, you know, with, with peers, but to continue to present himself as the chief opponent to to, I call him Mr. Robinette, Joseph Robinette Biden, Mr. Robinette. Uh, Chris Christie, interesting. I, th- I think his sole role is to try to throw haymakers just to get to New Hampshire. I don't think he's trying to get beyond New Hampshire. And I think he's trying to ingratiate himself to Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, and I think he wants to serve as a stopgap to keep uh, former President Trump from winning in New Hampshire. That's my opinion. That's what I think is going on here. Uh, but I want you to listen a bit to former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie uh, as he describes himself as the only candidate who's actually beaten an incumbent Democrat. It is clip number three. Look, everybody on this stage wants to be the next president of the United States. 
And the only way that's going to happen is if we beat Joe Biden. I'm the only one on this stage who's ever beaten a Democratic incumbent in an election. I did it in a deep blue state, being outspent three to one. Beating a Democratic incumbent is not easy. The last Democratic incumbent president who was defeated was Jimmy Carter. And he was defeated by a conservative governor from a blue state who knew how to get results, who stood for the truth, who cared about accountability, and stood strong and hard against waste. Those are the very things that I did in my eight years as governor of New Jersey, and it's exactly what I'll do as president of the United States. Believe me, the Democrats want some other nominee who's never beaten a Democratic incumbent. I'm the one who can win this race, and if you give me the chance, I will restore our country by winning it. All right, that was Chris Christie. That's what he said, comparing himself to Ronald Reagan, although he didn't say, you know, like Ronald Reagan, but if you're paying attention, everybody knows who you're talking about. Hmm, let's see, who's the hmm, conservative governor from a blue state that beat Jimmy Carter? <laughs> it's so funny the way these people talk, man. Now I want you to take a take a take a few moments to hear Florida Governor Ron DeSantis discussing Mr. Robinette. And energy. Clip number five. Go. Our country is in decline. This decline is not inevitable. It's a choice. We need to send Joe Biden back to his basement and reverse American decline. And it starts with understanding we must reverse Bidenomics so that middle class families have a chance to succeed again. We cannot succeed as a country if you are working hard and you can't afford groceries, a car, or a new home while Hunter Biden can make hundreds of thousands of dollars on lousy paintings. That is wrong. We, we also cannot succeed when the Congress spends trillions and trillions of dollars. Those rich men north of Richmond have put us in this situation. And finally, we need to lower your gas prices. We're going to open up all energy production. We will be energy dominant again in this country. I showed it could be done in the state of Florida. I pledge to you as your president, we will get the job done and I will not let you down. He said he won't let you down. You know, one of the, the, the most odd things to me is if you watch the debate, first of all, when the debate started, the Fox News program, did. I don't know if anybody else noticed this, um, the very beginning, before they actually turned to the candidates, there was an advertisement for Joe Biden running for re-election. Did y'all see that? The very beginning, the very first ad. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's how this is starting. Okay, all righty, all righty then. Then the very first question, and I have to say, I am sorely disappointed in the moderators and the questions. I mean, with all of the conversation, and I've been covering on my program, all of these things leading up to the where people are talking about masks are coming back and, you know, another Schmovid variant, Aries, EG5, 2, crooked letter, crooked letter. I mean, no questions about that at all. Nobody asked, well, what do you think about, you know, Operation Warp Speed? And all, none of, like, what is going on here? But they began the debate by playing a portion of Oliver Anthony's. Richmond North of Richmond song. Did you see that? At the very beginning, they play, they play some of this catch YouTube video. 
and get the 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 candidates to respond to that, which is why you heard Governor Ron DeSantis mention these Richmond north of Richmond. They played a song, and I'm just like, okay. So is anybody going to respond here? Because what he's talking about in the song, a lot of those people have been in government and in Congress to create the conditions that he's singing about. I just thought I just thought that that was extremely, extremely odd. So as everybody knows at this juncture, former President Trump did not participate in the debate. I have my per- perceptions as to why he did so, but he provided a pre-taped 46-minute interview with Tucker Carlson, which Tucker Carlson aired on his Twitter feed. Well, X. The artist formerly known as Twitter. Um, and, I mean, these dudes are, are, are kind of shrewd because they begin the interview five minutes before the debate starts. <laughs> so by the time the debate is started, you have something like 20 million impressions on Tucker Carlson's interview with President Trump. Last I checked before coming on the air this morning, there was something like 142 million impressions on Tucker Carlson's video. I don't think 142 million people tuned into that debate last night. Maybe I could be wrong. But the first question out of the gate that former President Trump was asked by Tucker Carlson was why he didn't participate in the debate. I want you to hear from him in his own words. It's clip number one. Go. Mr. President, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Why aren't you at the Fox News debate tonight in Milwaukee? Well, you know, a lot of people have been asking me that, and many people said you shouldn't do them, but you see the polls have come out, and I'm leading by 50 and 60 points, and, you know, some of them are at one and zero and uh, two, and I'm saying, do I sit there for an hour or two hours, whatever it's going to be, and uh, get harassed by people that shouldn't even be running for president? Should I be doing that? Uh, and a network that isn't particularly friendly to me, frankly. You know, they, uh, they were backing Ron DeSanctimonious like crazy, and now they've given up on him. I mean, he's, it's a lost cause. It reminded me very much of 2016. You know, in 2016, I went through the same stuff and had to fight them all the way, and then they became very friendly after I won, or just about when I was winning. But I just felt it would be uh, more appropriate not to do the debate. I don't think it's uh, right to do it. Uh, if you're leading by 50, 60, I have one poll, I'm leading by 70 points, and I'm saying, why am I doing it? And I'm going to have eight people, 10 people, whoever made the debate, I don't know how many it is, but I'm going to have all these people screaming at me, shouting questions at me, all of which I love answering, I love doing, but it doesn't make sense to do them. So uh, I've taken a pass. So he's taking a pass. Uh, again, this might just be me, but I thought it was funny the way he said two. <laughs> Some had one, two. <laughs> so he explains his decision not to debate as uh, um, his unwillingness to allow himself to be put in the ring with people who, as he said, shouldn't be running for president. Um, so I thought that was an interesting, interesting answer. Uh, I, what I really think, this is what I really think. And, and this, this is going to be a competitive primary. I really believe it's going to be a competitive primary. I think that former President Trump is a bit concerned about being on the stage alongside such a large number of candidates that will cut in on his ability to directly confront those who he perceives as being the the most, uh, who have the most ability 
to beat him at to to get the, the GOP nomination. So I think he wants to wait until the field winnows more before he participates in the debate because uh, being in a, in a format like that last night, I mean, there were times when I forgot certain people still on the stage, you know? I mean, I'm just telling you the truth. Just as a regular, you know, person observing what's happening, like, oh, oh yeah, Doug Burgum is still up there, you know? Oh, Asa Hutchinson. And can somebody tell me why Asa Hutchinson is still in the race? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know. And then at one point he mentioned Asa Hutchinson mentioned being in the Bush administration. And I forgot about that. I was like, oh, yeah, you were in the Bush administration. You've been around for a long time, man. Uh, but on the whole, as I started off by saying, I, I feel like it's separate tiers of candidates. You know, you have, you know, the former president, Donald Trump, in one place. Then you have Ron DeSantis with Vivek Ramaswamy ascending, attempting to approach Ron DeSantis' level. Then you have everybody else. That's, that's why I see it. Um, I thought Senator Tim Scott had an opportunity to help himself, uh, but I just don't know if he can do more than what he's done. Um, I think he does have a good record to run on as a South Carolina senator. Um, but again, I do think it's curious, and this is not a debate question, but can somebody help me understand why both U.S. senators from South Carolina are unmarried. I, I just. Dr. Youngblood has an answer. <laughs> I, I just, it's just something that I'm interested to know. You know what? You know, and then, you know, Nikki Haley. Um, I, I thought her answer on, ab on abortion was absolutely putrid, frankly. I thought it was absolutely putrid. And when did it become something that is a part of a Republican presidential primary. So are we doing identity politics now? You know, I'm a woman. I, I am woman. Hear me roar. Like, what, that's what we're doing? That's what we're rocking with? Like, is, is she in the wrong primary? She has a record to run on. Why are you consistently referring to yourself as an immigrant and a woman? As a descendant of immigrants and a woman? I thought with the principles of conservatism, we ain't trying to do the identity politics thing. Somebody is telling her to do that, which makes me believe that she's campaigning, dare I say auditioning, for a role other than the GOP nominee for the presidency. Because there's no way she strongly believes that that is an argument route that is going to gain gravity with the American people. Yeah, former Vice President Mike Pence. Um... What can I say? Uh, do you think Governor Mike Pence, former governor, former vice president Mike Pence, has a chance to win? I think it's very telling to be the former president, former vice president, but you're pulling behind a dude who's named Vivek Ramaswamy. On the whole, on the whole, Ramaswamy, DeSantis, I think, performed the best on the debate stage. I think everybody else performed as expected. I don't think anything happened that wasn't expected except for it got spicy at points. But I don't think anything substantively occurred to change the dynamics very much in terms of the presidential campaign. 
I think Vivek Ramaswamy introduced himself to a broader audience than he ever had been able to do so before. But I don't think his campaign has staying power ultimately. But it remains to be seen what happens from here. And I'll be interested to see how the candidates pivot from this point. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning, Abraham Hamilton III in on her behalf. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.